We have a responsibility particularly for those who are the most vulnerable, and the children that we serve throughout our counties really fit that category of, of the most vulnerable people in our society. We're driven by the gospel to make sure we glorify God by serving Him, by serving these children. This is First Person. Welcome to this week's conversation. I'm Wayne Shepard, and today we'll be talking with Tim Rogers about the plight of children in Appalachia who need both better medical care and education. We'll talk about the ministry of the Elgin Children's Foundation, and we'll get started in just a moment. You can learn more about our guests each week through our online presence. We have both a website and a Facebook page for First Person, and we welcome you to visit either or both. The website is firstpersoninterview.com, where you can stream any past interview and see the upcoming schedule. And on Facebook, you can read the comments of other listeners and leave your own. Go to facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Once again, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Well, we sometimes forget that right here in America, there is a place where children are suffering from a lack of proper medical and dental care and where literacy is lacking and other educational needs are not being met adequately. The Elgin Children's Foundation is focused on helping fill this gap in several key counties in rural southern Appalachia. Tim Rogers is the vice president of the foundation, and as we spoke on the phone, I asked him where the foundation focuses its efforts. We focus on rural southern Appalachia and... um as was the original charter of the foundation, we, we try to serve 10 counties specifically, um, and they are 10 counties that the Thompson family at some point has lived or uh, worked or had their mining operations. And so there are four counties in southeastern Kentucky, uh, four counties in northeast Tennessee, and two counties in southwest Virginia. So that's, that's our ministry footprint, or those 10 counties in rural southern Appalachia. And how would you describe those counties and the challenges that are faced, especially by families and children in those areas? Extremely challenging. I think, I think many middle-class Americans have no idea some of the uh, crumbling family dynamics, some of the poverty indicators that these children are facing. And just, just to give for an example, uh, we, we use the phrase quite often about children facing very vulnerable uh, circumstances in early childhood of, of toxic poverty and toxic family situations. For example, one of the counties in which we serve we visited a kindergarten classroom one time and, and interacted with a very exasperated kindergarten teacher uh, who was doing her best to, to teach the children that were in her classroom. And she pointed at her class and she said, I've got 22 children in here. said 17 of them will go home to no biological parent tonight. Wow. And she could take us through each of the, each of the children. One was with a grandparent, one an aunt, an uncle, a foster child. Uh, but in that very same can- county, the uh, Annie Casey Foundation did a study and found that 72% of the grandparents in that county uh, have primary custody of their grandchildren. God bless grandparents, but but they're meant to be grandparents, not parents. Mm-hmm. And so we just see a very crumbling family dynamic. We also just see some uh, some some difficult health environment that kids face, and uh, dental dental issues are one of the biggest that we have found throughout communities, which is why we focus so much on that. Uh, but uh, the, this, these children growing up in these communities that we're serving are facing some of the harshest living conditions in America. In fact, I like to reference people to a New York Times article that was released in uh, June of last year, June of 2014. Uh, It it actually looked at all 3,120-something counties in America and tried to rank them by the hardest counties to live in. Three of the counties that we serve in southeastern Kentucky were in the top 25 of those. In fact, number one on that list was Clay County, Kentucky. Number three on that list was Leslie County, Kentucky. We we work in both of those counties. Hmm. 
I've spent just a little bit of time in that general vicinity, and it's obvious that the poverty and the, and the problems that exist, I'm so glad that you're addressing the issues that you're addressing. Let's begin with the health issues. What, what are you able to do in health and wellness, Tim? This goes back to whenever our foundation really began trying to impact children in poverty, we actually conducted a community needs assessment back in the late 90s, all with the idea of we wanted to find out in this effort to try and impact children of poverty, how can we make life-changing differences for children in poverty? One of the first things we tried to identify is what are children most needing that they are also missing out on? Um, And it was very clear in the late 90s that one of the most important needs of children was early dental health and early dental treatment. Uh, In fact, back at that time, only about 20 to 25 percent of the kids who uh, qualified for Medicaid were ever seeing a dentist on an annual basis. So uh, the tragedy of that is that the the government is obligated to provide that dental care if those children will just uh, actually find the the opportunity to sit in a dental chair. But but the opportunity was not afforded. Children were missing out. And we we saw a lot of health problems related to early dental health. Uh, So... Oh, and by the way, the Pew Charitable Trust would still say on their website that early dental health is the greatest unmet need for children in poverty, even Mm -hmm. today. Uh, The numbers have grown to about 48% of kids across America who who actually access dental care uh, on an annual basis. But but we're still talking about one out of every two children are having severe dental needs that are not being met. Is it neglect? Is it a lack of providers? What's driving that? Yeah, it's a perfect storm of things. It really goes back to even one of the, the things I mentioned earlier, that crumbling family dynamic, that a lot of times you, if you don't have a caring support structure around you, they're not tending to even some of the basic needs of children. And so in a lot of cases, it really is just a, a lack of concern, a lack of prioritization. When we first started trying to focus on the dental health of kids, we also thought uh, that a lack of access was one of the biggest problems. In fact, I, I think it used to be a bigger problem that there weren't enough dentists in America willing to see children in poverty. As we have continued to work over 10 years now in this program, we've seen that uh, the lack of access is less of a concern now, and lack of participation is the biggest concern. Hmm. Uh, much of what we do in our dental program, any parent could do or any guardian could do but they tend to not do it. They're not proactive in terms of scheduling appointments and maintaining those appointments. Uh, in fact, for children in poverty, any dentist that we work with would tell you that one of the biggest problems these dental offices face are no-shows, uh, that when they schedule appointments for these children, uh, a lot of times those, those same guardians just don't honor those appointments and don't bring those children. So what we did was we actually worked with the public school system because we've, we found the public school system to be a great partner uh, to impact children in poverty because that children in poverty end up in the public school system and they're required to be there 180 days a year. So, uh, so we work with the public school system to actually coordinate communication with parents and guardians to get those parents and guardians to give us permission to actually transport their children to a dental office where they can receive dental care. Uh, a simple way of understanding how we operate our dental program is we just coordinate hundreds of field trips to dental offices over the course of the year in which we're loading kids up on the school buses at the school, taking them to the dentist, having all their dental needs met. We take kids through, through the full range of screenings and treatments, and we're seeing, we're seeing numbers that almost double the national average of, of children who actually receive dental care on an annual basis. So you're doing this in cooperation with local schools? Yeah, yes we are. We, we could not do it without the schools. The schools work with us to, uh, to communicate with the parents, to receive the, nece- the necessary permission to uh, first screen and then treat those children. Uh, they, they work with the parents to get permission to actually transport the kids to the dentist. 
the schools are a great partner to help us facilitate that dental care for kids. And the schools, I have to imagine, really welcome that partnership with you. Oh, absolutely. We do several things throughout our communities, but if you went into these communities, they would probably tell you that that's the most beloved program. Uh, because in terms of actually seeing life-changing differences in these children, uh, they, it's, it's much easier to see in the dental program than some of the other things that we do. A 12-year-old child up in Leslie County, Kentucky, a county that we work in, uh, went, to the, uh, went to the school nurse one day complaining about his mouth hurting. Uh, and I wish, if this, was, if this was a videotaped interview, I'd love to show you the picture, uh, but the child's mouth was, you know, the teeth were black and stained and eroded, and anyone, even non-dental professionals, could look at that and say, yeah, that child's mouth should be hurting. Mm-hmm. And so we immediately got the child into the program, and uh, I think the child had to go to the dentist seven or eight times to, to, to treat all those needs. But to give you the story about how we've learned that changing smiles can change lives, um, I actually spoke to the principal of that school not long after that, and I said, did you not notice this child's mouth? You know, you know we have this program. You could have helped us get him in here. And the, and the principal told me, he said, so this child never speaks. He said, this is a child who came to school with a jacket on and hair hanging over his face, and he was closed off to everybody around him. He never raised his hand. So for a child who never opens his mouth at school, we couldn't notice a problem. <laughs> So that's the way the child came into our program. After the child had been to the dentist about eight times to get, to get all that fixed, uh, the dentist in that community, I, I wish she could tell you the story of the transformation. She pulled out the mirror and showed him his smile after, after all those problems were fixed. And he jumped out of the chair and picked her up oh. and swung her around. <laughs> and then he went down the hallway showing everybody in the office his smile. I guess after going about eight times over a couple of months, he knew everyone there. Oh, boy. And, and the beautiful thing is that that child was in sixth grade when he came into our program. Well, it, and this was the same child who was, a, who was a recluse and never spoke to anybody. The next year, the people in the school system just continued to share story after story about how this, this child's life had changed. For the next year, he actually participated in the academic team. He had never done that before, and he made it all the way to the state level in mathematics. He became the computer tech support uh, student who was going around fixing computers. Uh, But the dental liaison we work with at the school would tell you that the most noticeable difference was at school dances. The child never used to attend those. Now he's on the dance floor all the time. <laughs> and so we're just continuing to track that child's story as just, a, just an example of how when you change a child's smile, it, it tends to change their life. You'll learn more about the Elgin Children's Foundation and the work of Tim Rogers coming up in the second half of today's First Person. I'm pleased to announce that First Person is now produced with the support of the Far East Broadcasting Company. For nearly 70 years, FEBC has been proclaiming the gospel through radio and now new technology. Active in nearly 50 countries of the world and broadcasting in over 100 languages, FEBC, founded in 1945, remains faithful to its founding vision to take Christ to the world by radio. To learn how you can support FEBC, visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. My guest on First Person today is Tim Rogers, Vice President of the Elgin Children's Foundation, serving a specific area in Southern Appalachia. And what an exciting story. And I'm grateful to have the chance to tell this story nationwide of what uh, what is being done there in Southern Appalachia. Uh, Tim, we've talked about health and wellness. Uh, this foundation, there's more that you do, and I want to talk about as much as we can here in the next few minutes. There's more that you do in this community-based foundation, but it's really the gospel that drives you, isn't it? 
Absolutely, it is. It's the it's the wellspring that we draw from to uh, to energize us to do what we do. We I, I I routinely tell people it interests me in Scripture that the very first question that is recorded in Genesis of man ever asking God a question was the question, "Am I my brother's keeper?" And I think that's interesting that that's the first question man ever asked of God, because I really think the testimony of Scripture there forward is that we do have a responsibility to look after others. Um, and I think that we have a responsibility particularly for those who are the most vulnerable, uh, and the children that we serve throughout our counties really fit that category of, of the most vulnerable people in our society. And so, yes, we're driven by the gospel to make sure we glorify God by serving him, by serving these children. Well, we won't have time to touch on everything you do today, but I do want to talk about education. This is another exciting aspect of of some progress you've seen. So talk to me about the educational needs there and what you're doing. Yeah, we uh, again, this goes back to a study that we conducted about five years ago and all around the idea of how do we impact children of poverty to help give them the foundational skills that they need to live out the life that God intends for them. And in that endeavor, we really honed in on the importance of early literacy skills, particularly developing strong literacy skills by the time children exit third grade. And and I've got a mountain of research I could share with you that essentially says that up until about third grade, every child in America is learning how to read. So they're all on the same page, just at different stages. But after they transition into fourth grade, Every child is basically expected to have the skill of reading um, and use that skill to learn other subjects. So the kids who are behind just continue to fall further and further behind. In fact, it's, there was a great study in the 1980s by a researcher named Stanowich that uh, he, actually, he actually entitled his research The Matthew Effect after the quote of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that said the, uh, that, that those who have will be given more and those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from, him, mm-hmm. from them. And he used that in reference to literacy skills to say that kids who transition from third to fourth grade with strong literacy skills will get richer and richer academically. And those who transition without those skills will fall further and further behind. Yeah. We really invested in trying to partner with, uh, with schools as well as even other nonprofit organizations to try and make certain that we could advance as many kids as possible across that threshold of reading above grade level before they exit third grade. All right, we'll talk about what you're doing, but what's holding kids back? Why is literacy such an issue? Again, it's really a mixture of things, but uh, if I could pinpoint one thing, I would say it's just uh, the lack of exposure to vocabulary and early language development through the first four or five years of life. And again, this goes back to some of those crumbling family dynamics that I mentioned. Uh, another great study that was done, a lady by the name of Betty Hart, she, she produced a study called The Meaningful Differences in the Everyday Lives of American Children. It's a great study, but the one thing that applies to, to what I'm talking about here is, is this, that over the first four years of life, she actually analyzed children who are growing up in three different environments, children who are growing up in families on welfare, children who are growing up in working-class families, and children who are growing up in professional-class families. Over a span of seven-plus years, she actually just analyzed what was their exposure to, to words, what was their exposure to vocabulary. And she came to the conclusion uh, that over the first four years of life, children growing up in families on welfare will hear and interact with about 32 million fewer words than children growing up in professional-class families. Really? Wow. And her simple conclusion was that the only reason why these children are behind is because they just weren't stimulated in the same way that children from professional and even working-class families will hear 13 million uh, more words uh, than those on welfare. So, so the children are behind simply because they just weren't exposed to the same rich vocabulary as what other children are. So do you work with the schools? How do, how do you proceed? Uh, 
uh, our primary program is we actually do work with schools on a, on a reading intervention program, kindergarten through third grade. Uh, we recognize that kids are entering kindergarten day one. Many, many of these kids are already behind before they get there. So we actually have a program that's designed to produce annual growth um, and catch-up growth. And now I use those two terms to, to mean this way, that, uh, that I think the fairest thing to expect out of a teacher is that if you get a child in your classroom for one year, you should be able to produce about one year worth of academic growth. Well, the problem is we have many of the children in our school systems who are entering two and three years behind their classmates, mm-hmm. even from the first day of kindergarten. So if a child enters three years behind their classmate and you produce one year worth of growth for all those children, well, that child who entered three years behind yeah. is still three years still behind, behind, and they right. always will be. And so, so we try to make sure that, that we created a program that can produce that annual growth, that one year worth of growth plus extra. And so our goal is to get one and a half to two years worth of growth for kids within our within the school systems every year. Are you seeing that happen? Yeah, we absolutely are. We're seeing uh, improving numbers all the time. In fact, we've had our we've had our program evaluated by a couple of third party sources, and they would all tell you that we're that we are producing statistically significant growth in the number of kids who are reading above above grade level, above benchmark, and all of these on all of these grades. We're not. Uh, I'm sure that we've set some goals that we still have not reached. We hope to get to the point where we're seeing 90 percent of our kids reading above that level. Uh, and we've reached that in a few elementary schools, but we are approaching that district-wide in a few districts. But one of the things that's actually made this more challenging is that in five years of this program, we have actually seen a trend-line decline of incoming kindergarten scores in each of our districts. The challenge is we're seeing great growth kindergarten through third grade, but every new class that's entering kindergarten is a little bit further behind. Mm-hmm. And so the distance to, to go to catch those kids up is growing every year. So to kind of look into the future of, of where our foundation is heading, we're, we're exploring better ways to engage in those first four to five years of life to reduce some of that fallback that kids are experiencing. Boy, I'm so grateful you're doing what you're doing there. Tim, personalize this. Tell me the story of some kids that are, their lives are just different because of what you're doing. Oh, as I said, we, we have many, many stories that, uh, that, that come from the dental program, a few that, that we've heard from the academic program. In fact, I had a, had a superintendent just very recently tell me that he's just heard just difference in language of their fifth through eighth graders now who have come through our early literacy program than, than what he had ever heard before. And I always love to go and find some of those teachers who've spent 20-plus years in these school systems and just say, you know, give me your, it's a very subjective thing, but give me your assessment. Are kids reading better now than they used to? And, and to a person, they always say that they have. But the superintendent who shared that story said, you know, I just hear my students talking about a different future now than what we used to hear. Uh, to juxtapose two things, say, for example, when we first started this program, there was a principal who's now spent over 30 years at the same elementary school in one of our counties. And she said that she one time had a first grader tell her when we started this emphasis in reading, first grade students said, I don't have to learn how to read. I'll just wait for the mailman to bring me my check like mom does. And now she says that we're starting to hear language from our fourth and fifth graders who are talking about pursuing academic endeavors in college and pursuing, uh, they talk about everything from becoming pharmacists to becoming uh, lawyers to becoming doctors. And we just, we tend to think that, that a change in the way that kids interact with words, the way they interact with, with literature, the way they, it changes the way they write. And so kids are starting to actually develop those dreams much longer and much later in life than what uh, a lot of these school leaders used to see. Yeah, I know it's changing 
changing those kids' lives and is really helping uh, the teachers and the principals do their job well, which they want to do, I'm sure. So it sounds like a great program. Tim, how long have you been doing this, and, and what does this mean to you personally? I'm in my fourth year uh, with Elgin. Um, I actually was a pastor in one of Elgin's counties for 10 years before coming here. So, so I really got a chance to do it on, on two different sides. I was, I was a church partner working alongside Elgin to try and develop, particularly try and develop some summer ministries for kids because we, 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 we've always noticed in the data that kids fall behind on a lot of those gains that we made during the school system. They fall behind in the summers. Uh, so we always work to try and develop some summer opportunities. And then four years ago, I had the opportunity to, to join and work with Elgin on all of Elgin's projects. And it's been extremely meaningful for me because I'm from the counties that we, that we serve. Uh, in fact, when people ask me where I'm from, I'm always happy to answer that question because according to the New York Times, I am from the hardest place to live in America. <laughs> I actually was, was born and raised in Clay County, Kentucky, and uh, graduated from there and pursued uh, some educational studies and then returned as a pastor simply because I wanted to help the area. So you have uh, been called into what you're doing, haven't you? Absolutely. Absolutely, I have. And, uh, and, and I think to, to personalize it just a little bit for me, I, I've always said I, I love the fact that our foundation is named the Elgin Foundation. Um, and to really briefly give you the reason why, the foundation was originally called the B.R. Thompson Charitable Trust, named after the founding philanthropist. In 2003, the family decided to change the name to the Elgin Foundation because they believed that helped tell the story a little bit better of what we're trying to accomplish. And the reason why is if you go back to the 20s and 30s, B.R. Thompson Sr. was from Elgin, Tennessee. Uh, Elgin, Tennessee actually ranks among some of the, some of the more out-of-the-way, rural, small, insignificant places that you could ever visit. In fact, in 2010, there were only 282 people living in Elgin, Tennessee. That's where B.R. Thompson Sr. was born and was raised in poverty. And by the grace of God, he actually ended up working his way up through the mines from actually being a miner to being a salesman in the, uh, in the coal mines. And then eventually, uh, he patented a new way to, uh, to process anthracite coal into coke. And long story short, he, he grew from a childhood of poverty to owning one of the largest private mining reserves in America. And that all started in a very small town in Elgin, Tennessee. And one of the reasons why I like that, I think there are parallels to whenever, whenever Jesus was entering the scene of ministry. I love this, the story in John chapter 1 where, where Philip was going and telling others about, uh, about Jesus. And he told Nathaniel, he said, Nathaniel, you've got to come see Jesus. You've got to come see the, the Christ. And Nathaniel, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love that story because I actually think we live in a world today that's still asking that question. Yeah. Can anything good come out of Elgin, Tennessee? Mm-hmm. Can anything good come out of Manchester, Kentucky, and some of the other very small communities that we serve? And so it was very exciting for me to, to take this place with Elgin and say, yeah, I think, I think there's still a great future and a great story in store for some of these kids who are growing up in some of the most challenging circumstances in America. Our guest today has been Tim Rogers of the Elgin Children's Foundation in Southern Appalachia. We applaud the work of the foundation, which is driven by the gospel to help children and their families in so many ways. We've only identified a couple of their programs and results today, but there is much more they're doing, and you can learn more by visiting our website, firstpersoninterview.com. I know Tim and all those connected to the foundation would welcome your support. Again, go to firstpersoninterview.com to learn more. These weekly interviews are made possible through the support of the Far East Broadcasting Company. My thanks to FEBC for including us in their vision of taking Christ to the world through radio. 
And if you'd like to learn more about FEBC, go to firstpersoninterview.com. Follow the links at firstpersoninterview.com. Next week, our guest will be journalist and pastor Wallace Henley. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next week for First Person.